this is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor with Healing in His Wings, Paul. Paul, how are you doing? <laughs> wow. Now I feel a little under underprepared. Um, I'm doing good. Oh, no. Do you not have healing in your wings today? I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to check. I'm not sure. It's still early. I haven't checked my wings yet, so... <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm expecting, I'm expecting it today. I guess if you don't, okay. um, boy, there are a lot of people I think who listen to the podcast for your your healing influence. So. Healing influence. Well, I'm working on my coffee, so talk to me in a few minutes. <laughs> Actually, I'm worried today we might set some people off. We are going to be talking about marking in your books later on. No, and uh, for some people that might be that might be too much. I was going to say, we usually shy away from controversial t- topics, but I think we might cross that line today. <laughs> yes, we can say whatever we want about a book, and about an author. Yeah. But how we treat these books. That's right. <laughs> it's a whole different story, as we found out. Oh, well, we did release a Patreon bonus episode last week. Um, it's kind of a Valentine's treat for Patreon listeners. Just want to say thanks to everyone there again it's it's fun to to do that it's fun to see the feedback we we just got together and recorded about a couple of books we said hey why don't you think of a couple of books i'll think of a couple that we want to talk about and let's go and we didn't say what kind of books you know books you want to read books you've read books you forgot about you know we didn't do anything like that and i thought it turned out pretty fun yeah i did too (laughs) i always enjoy those ones i like the ones where we have more structured well People who listen may not think we're very structured, but um, I like the ones where we have a specific topic to talk about, but sometimes it's just fun to just chat about books. Well, and it leads to some things that maybe we weren't planning on. So for example, I talked about um, potentially starting to read The Invention of Morel mm-hmm. to my oldest two sons, and um, or should I just reread A Month in the Country by myself? And I started reading... Uh, the invention of morale to my sons. Oh, you did? Nice. Yeah, yeah. I, Going okay so far? I think so. I think so. I think they're intrigued and curious. And we, we've only done a couple of sit-downs to, to go. It's a short book, and we're about halfway through, but we've only oh, done wow. it in two doses. So it, it, I'm excited to see where it gets when... Um, you know, when, when they start to know what's going on right now, they're just, I think, confused, but intrigued. <laughs> right. Well, that pretty much sums up my feelings the first time I read it, too. So <laughs> sounds like they're right where they should be. That's right. That's right. And they're, they're good sports. If they're not liking it, I can't tell. <laughs> yeah. Just so. be quiet and let dad think we like it. Now, one other thing I wanted to bring up in terms of feedback is the last episode we did our Valentine's Day, you know, um, different categories of book love and over on goodreads one of our listeners posted hey this is what's going on 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 the mooks and the gripes goodreads page which i'm not too active on um to to be honest but it is it's a great place for discussion about uh, new books and and different reading challenges and a, a lot of it's focused on what books are in book prizes uh but a lot of good good people talking about what what's coming out there are a lot of great um great discussions anyway they took our our task in a different direction there and ran with it and i think it is so funny are you ready i'm ready <laughs> if i treated lovers as i treat books oh there you go <laughs> i would want to date someone because they were on a prize list <laughs> 
since all my friends had tried them and enjoyed them, <laughs> uh, I'd received an advanced dating copy from Net Tinder. <laughs> Someone left them in my hotel room. <laughs> oh wow! I'd already dated all their siblings. Uh, they came as part of a subscription. <laughs> um, I'd feel rude saying no because someone lent them to me. <laughs> they had been sitting on my shelf patiently for years. Um, a few more here. Uh, I'd been vaguely eyeing them for years, and suddenly the time seems right. Hmm. And then uh, we dated before, but now they have a natty new outfit, and I have to have them again. <laughs> oh, there you go. And here's, uh, I mean, I, I'm going to just keep going here for a second. I'd abruptly end a lot of first dates before dinner even arrived because someone more interesting walked in. <laughs> I'd make plans with many lovers and then not show up. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see what's going on. During an evening spent with one, I'd excuse myself to go spend time with another and then dash back to the first. <laughs> And then here, here, this one's pretty fun too. Here's another list. This is my last little list here. I'd fall in love with centenarians. <laughs> I'd tattoo my name on them so people know they're mine. I'd underline my favorite parts. <laughs> I'd leave them in piles by my bed or boxed away in the basement. That's a little bit gruesome, but uh, I was going to say. <laughs> I'd share them with friends and family. F- fall asleep while listening to them. Abandon them if they are too cruel. Enjoy two or three at the same time. Uh, showcase my favorites on my shelf. Rank their performance. <laughs> and I'd occasionally break their spines, but feel really bad about it. <laughs> wow. That one went dark. <laughs> so anyway, I thought that was a really fun thread that they, they like I say, just took off and ran with. Um, thanks for doing that. I didn't, I, no one said I could use their names. It's public, you know, you can go join Goodreads and join the Mooks and the Gripes page and, and search around for it. But I also thought, well, I, I won't share anybody's name just in, just in case yeah. they were sharing it just for that group. But well, that's fun. And I will say that makes me appreciate books even more because it makes it clear when you frame it like that, how much they actually put up with from us. <laughs> that's right. That's right. They, <laughs> They're patient. They, exactly. They sit and wait. <laughs> take, take much abuse. All right, Paul. Uh, what have you been reading? Yeah, I have been on a good little streak. Um, we, we talked a little bit about how we finished up Grand Hotel as part of that fun reading project. So I finished that and that was just everything it was cracked up to be. I loved, loved the whole thing. And as you mentioned on our Patreon episode, I think it was... Um, it really picks up momentum at the end, not to say that it's slow, but there's a lot of getting to know people throughout and then it all really comes together very quickly and dramatically. at yeah. the end. So yeah, I really liked that. And then um, w- within like a day of finishing that, I was like, you know how, when you finish a book you love and you're like, man, how am I going to follow that up? And so I decided to go to with one that I was pretty sure I would love. And I ended up reading my phantoms by Gwendolyn Riley. I think I was, the last person on book Twitter to actually pick that one up. And <laughs> we've been waiting for you. Oh, <laughs> so nice when a book lives up to the hype, you know, it, that has just been praised to the moon and back so many times by so many people I trusted that I was pretty sure that I would love it. And I did. I mean, that is just a masterful book. Um, in some ways it reminded me of cold enough for snow by Jessica. Oh, just that mm. it's a very different book, but the, the, 
intimate look into a mother daughter relationship that you get to see and how you know, a little more forthcoming, I think with some of the details, but at the same time, you can read between the lines and kind of pick up on a lot of their history and things like that. But wow, just the mother character in my phantoms is mm. a fascinating character. So well drawn, so realistic, damaged and, you know, fairly mm-hmm. times, but at the same time, you can also kind of, empathize with her and even find her daughter going through these different cycles of like, you know, maybe what we find with some of our relatives or people we know where they annoy you. There's all this history that drives you nuts, but then there are those moments where you kind of have to like acknowledge certain parts of them and and give them credit. And I don't know, it was just so well done. I, I loved it for sure. I was going to ask you, have you read her other, what's her other main one that's out from NYRB? Uh, first love? No, I have not actually. I, I haven't either, but I'm I want, like, yeah, I, I need to I'm pick kind up of some holding more. it. Yeah, I'm kind mm-hmm. of holding it off, but but yeah. Um, did you by any chance uh, check out Rohan Mateson's thoughts on my phantoms? I haven't checked them out yet. No. Or cold enough for snow? <laughs> oh no! So, so she read them kind of one after the other, oh, and wow. she she did not like my phantoms. Yeah. I did see her post something saying, I can't remember, I don't want to quote her, but I think she said it was a little too cold for her or something along those lines. Yeah. And I, I kind of like that a little too cold for her, but then she, she read and, and really liked no cold for snow or no cold for snow, too cold for snow. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the reason I say that is I'm looking at her article here, her, her post that she wrote on uh, too cold for snow and it says no longer cold. Um, and Part of it is just the the sense of warmth in cold enough for snow that she felt was missing in my phantoms, mm-hmm. and you know she's it, it's really fun to chat with her because oh yeah, um, she's got great taste, and she's very articulate about why certain things appeal and why certain things don't to her, uh, which I really just appreciate because yeah. I, I mean she I loved my phantoms. And we just chatted about that just just briefly. I mean, in a couple of tweets, it's not like mm-hmm. they were saying, but it it led me to think a lot more about yeah. it all. But I just thought it was interesting that you you compare the two as well, since that was for her. Uh, Jessica Owls too uh, too cold for cold, snow. Cold was, for snow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I think I have not read. <laughs> I think I called it too cold for snow on an episode several ago, and I think I got us both down that path. So that's yeah, no. what happened. It's your <laughs> yeah, fault. it's all my fault. <laughs> um, anyway, just uh, really loved that one, and I need to pick that one up still. I yeah, don't have it. you do. I think you'd love that one. And it's so interesting the way that people that you you know, like you said, she is so insightful and well spoken. And she every time I read a post by her, I can always understand her point of view. But that's one of the things yeah. I love about all this is. My phantoms, I, I think I understand. I'll have to read her her blog to make sure that I don't put words in her mouth, but I think I understand what she's saying. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I definitely, their damaged characters in the relationship can sometimes get a little mean-spirited, but man, it felt so real. And I also felt like there was some true feeling, some warmth, some heat behind it. So, you know, it's just interesting how different people interpret a book or based on their own lives or just whatever the case may be. But yeah, I'll have to read those thoughts. Mm -hmm. But I did think despite, I understand what I think she's saying, but I don't know. There's so much like underlying passion 
and damage behind that too, that I don't know. It's just a very interesting. She mentioned something like, I think she knows a lot of us really like it. And I think she said something out that a lot of you are, are cerebral readers, um, which I'd, I'd love to follow up in a conversation with her a little bit mm. on, on all of that, because certainly she, it, she's, I, I don't think, I'm, again, we're talking about someone who's not here to tell us what, what they're really thinking, um, but hopefully she will. Um, uh, I'm, I know she's not thinking that she's not thoughtful or right. pensive or that she didn't, you know, or that there's some kind of intelligence barrier. Mm. It's a certain type of um, other different, a different type of appeal and I I thought that's a, an interesting conversation because again, like you say, I, I love reading her her mm-hmm. thoughts on anything, whether I liked it, didn't like it, didn't read it, won't read it, um, and I've gotten to not only understand and be able to kind of feel through my own thoughts on things, but she gives me a desire to be a better thinker yeah, and a absolutely. better communicator about how I feel about books and reading in general. She's so good at that. And so thanks, really thanks Rowan for that. Yeah. And uh, look forward to many more conversations. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and then if we have time, can I steal in with one more thing I'm reading? Yeah. I finally, finally got to The Passenger by Cormac McCarthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After a decade long wait, I decided, you know, why not wait a couple more months apparently? So, um, but yeah, I started that a couple of days ago and, you know, so far, I think when you talked about it on an episode quite a while back, you had talked about how you were a little bit wrong footed for the first sections because mm-hmm. it does skip around. And, you know, I won't say that I have a full grasp of what's going on right now, but I'm really enjoying it. And I was just going to read the opening, just the first page. Um, yeah. It was so nice to be back with Cormac. So I'll just quickly read that. It said, it had snowed lightly in the night and her frozen hair was gold and crystalline and her eyes were frozen cold and hard as stones. One of her yellow boots had fallen off and stood in the snow beneath her. The shape of her coat lay dusted in the snow where she dropped it, and she wore only a white dress, and she hung among the the bare gray poles of the winter trees, with her head bowed and her hands turned slightly outward, like those of certain ecumenical, ecumenical statues whose attitude asks that their history be considered. That the deep foundation of the world be considered, where it has its being in the sorrow of her creatures. The hunter knelt and stogged his rifle upright in the snow beside him and took off his gloves and let them fall and folded his hands one upon the other. He thought that he should pray, but he'd no prayer for such a thing. He bowed his head. Tower of ivory, he said, house of gold. He knelt there for a long time. When he opened his eyes, he saw a small shape half buried in the snow and he leaned and dusted away the snow and picked up a golden chain that held a steel key, a white gold ring. He slipped them into the pocket of his hunting coat. He'd heard the wind in the night, the wind's work, a trash can clattering over the bricks behind his house, the snow blowing out there in the forest in the dark. He looked up into those cold, enameled eyes, glinting blue in the weak winter light. She had tied her dress with a red sash so that she'd be found, some bit of color in the scrupulous desolation, on this Christmas day, this cold and barely spoken Christmas day. Like, mm. I mean, like, I, I remember when I picked it up too. I, oh my and god! It felt the same thing of like, oh, here we are, here we are. Yeah, Cormac. <laughs> I know. For those who don't, you know, I think he's a divisive author in some ways, and for those who don't like him, that probably didn't do a thing for you. But for people like me, and I think probably Trevor, I don't want to speak for you, but it's, it's like catnip just to be back. You know, I missed, I missed him and all of his 
strange phrasings and, and beautiful descriptions and, and the darkness and everything else. So yeah, I'll report back as I make my way through it. I'm maybe like, you know, 30, 35 pages in something like that, but more than anything, I just appreciate that we got a chance to see at least a couple more books from him and <laughs> looking forward to diving in further. I am afraid to ask. I don't know that I ever heard any updates after your initial report. Uh, well, I have a confession to make. Okay. I'm probably about 40, 45 pages into it. Okay. <laughs> I, I started it and really enjoyed it. It just came at a time when there were other things that I found more uh, important to read. Yeah. And, and I was getting kind of lost and feeling like I needed to reread it already. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're in that section uh, where she is like being visited by ghosts almost it feels mm-hmm. and i thought i need to reread that but i haven't yet so i have not finished it and okay. and it's it's also at about that time that i every there was kind of a bigger backlash um yeah. like this is not good and and i thought i need to get a i need to read this when i don't have all those voices in my head yeah absolutely. um so I, so i apologize i have i actually did not finish it so i have not even picked up stella maris yet to see how that one um you know, follows up or, and I've heard both things on that. Like, Oh, it's a great culmination. You know, you want to read it and it, it it definitely satisfies. And there's like, I don't even think this is, this is like the cutting room floor. Mm. And I'm like, I I just, I guess I need to just, you know, get there when it's, when, when I'm ready for it. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I, as much as I do love, you know, being in on all these conversations, there are those times, like you said, where you get something in your head and you kind of wish, you hadn't just for the simple fact of it's yeah. nice to come to it with a fresh face. I mean, I don't remember who it was, but somebody that I, I know and trust on Twitter had, had done a ranking of the Cormac McCarthy novels and they ranked these two. I don't know if it was at the top, but it was like top three, top four. Mm-hmm. So that gave me hope Which is again. Good. Yeah, I know it's even I, if it's divisive, I don't mind like if people have differing opinions because that means there's plenty of room for, mm-hmm. you know, interpretation and, and, personalities you know so just the fact that some people love it that much makes me think there's value to it and it might just be one of those where it hits different people different ways or and and i'll admit that probably another reason that i desisted wasn't so much that it was other people it's that i found myself lining up with them maybe a little bit by about page 50 or 60 i think i was like i'm hmm Mm-hmm. Hmm. What, what you know? This is feeling very opaque and not in a not in a good Cormac McCarthy way. And I felt like, no, this is not this is not the time to persist. Yeah. <laughs> and, no, and, I mean, there's no reason to push it. Sense. Mm-hmm. And maybe when you return to it in a month or a year, you know, you'll still feel mm-hmm. the same way. But as we've talked about, there are other times where it's just not the right time, and you read it later, and you know, oh, this is a completely different book. Yeah, it's not one that I've put away and said I'm never starting it again, or even that I'm only going to start again in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of just set it aside, I guess, and I do need to get back to it and intend to. So. Yeah, well, great. Well, I didn't mean to take up so much time with my reading, but reading That's so many okay. great books or interesting books, it's hard not to talk <laughs> about them. So yeah, how about you? What have you been reading? Well, so for a follow-up on the NYRB Women 23, the next Mm. book that we started yesterday, today's Saturday, February 18th, we started it yesterday on the 17th, is Dorothy Baker's Young Man with a Horn, which I didn't, I mean, I don't really know anything about it still. I've read the prologue in the first few sections, uh, but man, she's a good writer. I am very excited to 
to get further into this one and, and get through it. We'll be reading it by the end of the month, but I'm not too far into it yet. Um, but I guess maybe I'll just to share a little bit since I won't with the other two things I want to talk about in the prologue. She already mentions that this particular, the subject of this book is one of these who burns out, you know, in a blaze of artistic, you know, brilliance, but dies young. Mm-hmm. And the the narrator says, one of these days, even his records will be played out and give forth nothing but scratching under a steel needle. When that time comes, Rick Martin will really be dead, dead as a doornail, and I hate to see it happen. And just, uh, you know, I'm like, Ooh, this is mm-hmm. to start with us knowing at the end, you know, at least in terms of all that and with that kind of more pessimistic look here. Uh, but, you know, this is what it's about. It says, our man is, I hate to say it, an artist, burdened with that difficult baggage, the soul of an artist. But he hasn't got the thing that should go with it, and which I suppose seldom does, the ability to keep the body in check while the spirit goes on being what it must be. Mm, so, that's really yeah, good. excited to, to get further in that. But I think you'll be uh, excited to hear that I went back after really um, enjoying John Darniel's uh, Devil House mm-hmm. and listened to both Wolf in White Van and Universal Harvester over the last oh, couple of weeks. That's amazing. Love it. So, you know, as you said, he narrates them both. Um, he does that with uh, Devil House as well. Mm. Uh, but he is a great reader. Oh, man. I and love, love, love his audio. So I really thought these were great books. I Both of them. And I still probably my favorite still Devil House. I think that I just like so much about that one, and maybe it's because it was the first one. Uh, but I love how strange these are. These are quite a bit shorter mm-hmm. than than Devil House. Just strange. And Wolf in White Van, I was on board from start to finish. Universal Harvester, I was definitely on board at the start. I thought, man, this is such an intriguing premise. You know, this video store employee, and you know, people finding someone has been recording things that just look sinister mm-hmm. uh, on the the movies and bringing them back to the store. And, you know, they go out to the farmhouse where they're like, I think this is where it's being recorded. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? Is this a Blair, Blair Witch Project? What, you know, what kind of things are happening? And then the book takes a major twist and detour for the middle, you know, half. And I thought, I don't, I don't think I'm gonna, I'm, I don't think I'm going to like this one. And then somehow by the end, I'm like really touched and really still in, impressed, still feeling the dread and still feeling that this co- a conflict of feelings of this is something horrible is going on, but but something beautiful. I was I, I don't know yet. I I just finished it the other day, yeah. and I can't quite figure out. I don't I don't really know if if I missed things that I should know that I that would would spell it out a little more clearly. It's definitely a weird kind of confusing ending mm-hmm. for me because I'm like, well, there's there he has it both ways. He has it sinister and beautiful, right? And I don't, I don't know if I missed something to be able to land on one side or the other, or if that's part of it. I I don't know, but I I was very happy with it by the end. I was like, oh, this is pr- pretty brilliant, actually. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean your your summary of that one kind of sums up my feelings of it too. It's been a few years, quite a few years since I read it, but I remember having a very similar reaction, like not sure if I missed something, wanting to reread it, which I have not yet done, but yeah, I don't know. There might be more to it or there might not be, but 
he is so good at, at exactly what you just described, like that walking that line of of sinister, but like still heartfelt. And I don't know, um, as a musician, mm-hmm. I feel like those books are like earworms, you know, where they just get into your head and you can't get them out. And I mean, every one of his books, I, I still kind of like you said, for me, I think Wolf and White Band is probably still my favorite. And it's probably because it was the first one that I came across. And I've talked about that experience of listening to yeah. it while we were on a road trip and everything. So that one just embedded <laughs> itself so strongly because of multiple reasons. But yeah, every one of his books, you know, I, I love all of them, but they all hit you and just stick for me. <laughs> and it sounds like for you too. So yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you dove in and yeah, I'm ready for another one. Um, he's <laughs> John Darnielle is, I know. Yeah. What's taking so long. He actually does have an older one. I can't remember the name of it. And I think it's, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's a minor work, quote unquote, type of a thing, but I've thought about looking it up and grabbing it sometime, you know, because he does have one more that he wrote a while back. But I don't think I, I knew that. I thought he wrote these three. Yeah, it's I don't remember what it's called, um, but I Wikipedia just says he has written three novels, Wolf and White oh. Band, Universal Harvester and Devil House. So so but, you know, he's so involved in other things. It looks like he's got a novella. Yeah, so that would be it. Black Sabbath. That must be what it is. Yeah, that's it. Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath's Master of Reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, that one, not that this is like the way to, to rate, to judge things, but it has like four and a half stars on Amazon. So it's not like it's some, you know, yeah, minor thing that nobody pays attention to. So I can't remember if I mentioned this, but I saw him read here in Denver at the Tattered Cover for Devil House and got a chance to just briefly talk to him. Um and he's just a fascinating, really, really intelligent guy. And he has obviously the musical chops, but he is a huge proponent of translated fiction too. And that's one thing I appreciate appreciate about him is with his platform, he'll shoot videos, you know, that on Instagram or various other places, and he'll be talking about what he's reading. And he's, you know, reading NYRB classics or Archipelago or all these other things. So like he didn't have enough going for him. He's also, <laughs> he's one of us. So it looks like the Black Sabbath book is mm-hmm. about Black Sabbath. It's that 33 and a third series where great writers will pick an album oh, and okay. write about sense. it. So you've got, uh, you know, the whole series of people writing about, you know, Octung Baby or um, let's see here. I mean, 69 Love Songs. uh Highway 61 Revisited, that, that's actually written by Mark Polizzotti, who does a lot of our favorite translations. Oh, cool. And um, I love that album, too, so I might have to check that one out, too. I feel like Andy Miller from Backlisted maybe wrote one of these, but I'm not seeing it, so I could be I could be wrong there, but I, for some reason, was thinking that he wrote one in this as well. But anyway, so, yeah, that's probably why it doesn't pop up that often that makes sense. as, you know, a work of fiction, but that's pretty cool. I mean, he's He's a great writer and a mm-hmm. great musician. This this should be still worth uh, worth checking out. Absolutely. Great. All right. Well, marking books. Let's move on to that subject and see mm-hmm. see how much ire we can we can raise. That's right. Um I part of the reason we chose this is I think you you want 
you want to join the cult of a bookmarker. Is that right? You don't usually do it, but you've you've been impressed by some things you've seen. You, you're sensing some transcendent potential for yourself, yeah, and, and your relationship with books, and you you want to you know you want to join in with the the bookmarkers. <laughs> Is that exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> no, that's pretty close. I mean, I've for years been very much in the the pristine you know club of of just keeping them as clean as possible you know, putting them up on the shelf when you're done and, and just moving on. And, you know, I don't remember when it started, but I think it, like when I read War and Peace, I started, well, I take that back. Back in college, you know, of course I would, I would write, you know, in those books and I did enjoy it, but it still felt very illicit. <laughs> and then <laughs> I, I've gone for years and years and just been very much in the camp of just, you know, like I said, unblemished, but when I was reading War and Peace a couple of years ago, I started kind of making some underlines and notes and, you know, testing the waters a little bit. And it really helped. <laughs> and it actually, I what started <laughs> to intrigue me is that it did start to feel more interactive. And I felt like it increased my ability to understand and, and slow down and dig in instead of just buzzing through it. And so, yeah, we had, you know, it was back at the beginning of this month, I had been talking a little bit on Twitter about that and got into a little mini conversation with, you know, Rebecca and Dorian and a few other people about, and it kind of just brought up some of these things of, you know, I I said something like, it still feels illicit to me, but I'm starting to warm up to it, you know, and seeing in particular Chris Villa on his Mm -hmm. videos, he has all those tabs and and when he opens up a book to look at it, you can see all of his notes and underlining and it's always intrigued me the way that people can really just dig in and immerse themselves. So seeing that, you know, has really gotten me interested and it was kind of cool. Cause after we had been talking about that, he, he chipped in on Twitter and mm-hmm. said, I love seeing this thread for the record. I spent the majority of my reading life seeing any markings in books as a sort of defile, defilement or a desecration. And he says, it wasn't until I realized that it helps me have a conversation with the book that I saw it as valuable. And I really like that. I think that, is what's pulling me into it um, is that idea of having a conversation with the mm-hmm. book. I was listening the book. to the book Cougars just the other day and they, they brought this up in passing and they said, they talked about how much they liked, like if you get a used book and somebody has written in it, they said a lot of times it drives them crazy, but sometimes you see a previous reader, reader having an argument with the author, they said, and they said that they really liked that. And one of them, I can't remember if it was Chris or Emily said, I like my books to feel lived in. And so I thought that was kind of drawing the, the demarcation. Not mm-hmm. that there, I mean, it's, it's a spectrum. Uh, I've come to realize that as we've talked to people, but <laughs> I think some people like to, their books to feel lived in and loved and used and sometimes abused and other people it's like book as object, book as art. Um, so I think, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but I think that is at least the beginning of where the conversation might start is just, yeah. there's some different camps like that. Well, I think it goes to, maybe it's worth starting with a little bit of an interrogation on why do we want our books to be pristine? Because mm-hmm. I think that's a fair point. And, and I'm partially in that camp because yeah. my books on the shelf do generally look completely unread when I'm finished with them on the outside. I don't break the spines usually. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't care if people do that with their books, but I, I don't do it with mine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they... they they're still quite tightly bound, actually. I, you know, I, I don't. I guess I don't open them all the way or something no, like that. I'm the same way, yeah. And and it works out fine. I don't dog ear pages. 
that to me is like, oh, Dorian. But but again, I'm like, wait, 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 hold on there. You know, hold on, Trevor. <laughs> um, because I do mark up my books on the inside, sometimes quite heavily. In fact, on this reread of Invention of Morale, I had a pen back when I read it the first time, apparently. Oh, interesting. And I wasn't steady handed. It's not, it wasn't sitting. I think I told you in that episode, I remember reading it on a trip back West, like on a nice summer day out in the backyard of my in-laws house. And apparently without opening the book very hard, I would just kind of scribble and and mark with my pen, which I know Mm. some people would be like, I don't use pens. I don't, I want it to look nice. And I generally do too. I'll get into that just a little bit, but I think it's kind of fun to go back and see my own um, experience reading it the first time and seeing what stood out to me then and what's standing out to me this time. And I do think that that's one of the reasons that book stuck has always stuck with me certain parts is because I put myself into the book a little bit more than I do in other books that I just kind of breeze through. For me, the marking is, is, I don't know, it, 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 it deepens my relationship with the book um, in some way. I can't quite explain it, but, but, but why do we want a book to be pristine? Like what's that? Where's the impulse? Cause both of us have been there. Mm-hmm. Um, you most more recently, I think, you know, what, what is the purpose of a book that is pristine inside and out? If you've already read it, what do yeah, you think? I, it's a complicated question. Cause I don't know that I have a, a I think it's emotional for me. It's, mm-hmm. I love them as objects. I love them yeah. as almost friends. And so the thought I think of, of having this preserved and, and, perfect memory or something to revisit over and over again, I think has always been what has propelled me to, to keep them that way. And, you know, you see, you go to, you know, a used bookstore and you see like the, the free bin or the $1 bin and you see all these like tattered abused books and it just like, Oh, breaks your heart a little bit. And so I think for me, a lot of it is just this emotional response of like, I value them. So therefore they deserve to be taken care of. Like, you mm-hmm. know, not a museum pieces and not to be touched, but just the same way that you would give reverence to something, a, a piece of art that you think is beautiful in a museum. You know, I think one argument mm-hmm. would be that's kind of what you're doing here. And I know then the counter argument would be the, the contents are the art, but yeah. the, the package, not necessarily. So I, but I do think that that for me was always what it was is like, I love this. This is like a big part of my life. Um, and why would I not treat it with reverence? I think there's a bit of that with, with my response as well. There's this sense of wanting it to, to still be new in a way. Mm-hmm. And do you think there's a, an impulse that you have to share these with people that you don't want them to come upon your book that, is tattered and marked in, but you want it to be fresh for them? Or is there nothing of that? Because frankly, I don't, I don't usually lend my books out to people. So I don't think for me, that's a big part of it. I was going to say, I think mine is more honest. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and honestly, when I, when I've lent books out to people, that's when I've learned, I do care about these things looking nice because they come often come back just, and, and I I think I've maybe mentioned this before. I've lent out a few books over my time that have come back and I've thought, what did you do to this thing? Yeah. You know, I seriously, know. I, I can't even comp- I cannot imagine getting a book that is looks pristine and returning it to the owner 
looking like I've been bending it, taking it on walks in the rain, mm-hmm. you know, like that. <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine doing that with someone else's book. I guess people do it with their own, you know, that they, mm-hmm. they treating them like lovers. I, I like to go on walks in the rain with them. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's funny you say walks in the rain because I've talked before about how my brother and a friend of ours go on backpacking trips in the Colorado mountains most summers. And I often lend them each a book and I will admit that often they are books that, you know, like I do have some books that are more like trade paperbacks and things where I'm not quite as attached to them. But a couple of years ago, I loaned our friend um, a copy of True Grit, Charles Portis's book. And through no fault of his own, we got caught in a major rainstorm and there was major leaks and, you know, it was, it was one of those camping situations where all hell broke loose. But um, yeah, by the end of this trip, poor, poor true grit was just <laughs> soggy mess. And so, yeah, it's like, I do try to be the person who will loan out a book, but a few situations like that, even if it's nobody's fault necessarily, like if that had happened to me and it had been under my watch, I would have been like, well, okay. You know, but <laughs> it's hard not to like take it personally, you know, when it's somebody else with your book. So yeah, there's definitely, it gets complicated. But does it also push you to be like the initial impulse? Maybe not, but I I guess also when people have returned books to me that are now a little bit more worn, I've been like, I guess I'm okay with it to an extent. Like, I Mm -hmm. guess it's not as big of a deal. You know, I, I, I've I've softened on that a a lot Mm -hmm. over the last several years. And I, I don't know. I, Again, we're we're there are a lot of people who uh, I don't think either one of us is trying to say one side is or convert another side to no. our point of view because there's there is that spectrum and I think both of them have their their fine points yeah. just like there are people who are like why would you ever own a book you can right. just check it out from the library the only thing that's important is that you have engaged with the text in some way yeah. and it's like well no I I love having books to look at and books that to keep me company and. And on several of them, I love that, that that's an important part of my life. It isn't, and it isn't just about always what's on the inside. It's about the potential because you can see them because you can hold them because they are, they are beautiful, you know? So I, I get, I get both sides of it when it comes to all of that. Can I read? So there's this essay that that I came across that I think ties very nicely into this. And I think the, the two camps, so to speak, it, it does a wonderful job. So I've talked a lot about Anne Fadiman and how much I love her essays, and in particular, her book, Ex Libris. Um, and she has an essay in that book called Never Do That to a Book. <laughs> and it starts off with her brother leaving. They're in a hotel room, and he's leaving it like splayed open. The book is splayed open. The spine is broken. And a chambermaid, is, as she calls her, comes in and says, you know, never do that to a book. And so she says... I came to realize that just as there is more than one way to love a person, so is there more than one way to love a book. The chambermaid believed in courtly love. A book's physical self was sacrosanct to her, its form inseparable from its content. Her duty as a lover was platonic adoration, a noble but doomed attempt to conserve forever the state of perfect chastity in which it had left the bookseller. The Fatiman family believed in carnal love. To us, a book's words were holy, but the paper, cloth, cardboard, glue, thread, and ink that contained them were a mere vessel, and it was no sacrilege to treat them as wantonly as desire and pragmatism dictated. Hard use was a sign not of disrespect, but of intimacy. 
And then she goes on a little bit more. I'll just quickly, it says, I confess to marking my place promiscuously, sometimes splaying, sometimes committing the even more egregious sin of dog-earing the page. Here I managed to be simultaneously abusive and compulsive. I turned down the upper corner for page marking and the lower corner to identify passages I want to Xerox <laughs> for my commonplace books. She says, courtly lovers always remove their bookmarks when the assignation is over. Carnal lovers are likely to leave romantic mementos, often three-dimensional and messy. And then just one more paragraph. She says, the most permanent and thus to the courtly lover, the most terrible thing one can leave in a book is one's own words. Even I would never write in an encyclopedia. But I've been annotating novels and poems, transforming monologues into dialogues ever since I learned to read. Byron Dobell says that his most beloved books, such as the Essays of Montaigne, have been written on so many times in so many different periods of his life in so many colors of ink that they have become palimpsests. And so I just love that whole essay, but I thought it tied in perfectly to what we were talking about. And I like that, you know, the idea of the the courtly lover versus, you know, the <laughs> yeah, other but... types of, of love that you can do, you know, the carnal love. Um, <laughs> so I thought that was kind of funny. I do really like that. And, and, you know, you can kind of see where where she probably stands on it just by the words that she mm-hmm. uses. Um, I would like to read a counter essay by someone who adopts the courtly love, but who doesn't maybe write about it in that same way, but figures out a poetic, more even emotional reason mm-hmm. for it being that way. Cause you know, you say courtly love and I start to think prim and proper and a mm-hmm. little bit misguided, perhaps, you know, reverence to the wrong things, you know, beholden to rules rather than to your own self. Um, but at the same time, that rings true to me because just like Chris Villa's tweet said, I, I really like how he, he says it. It's about his conversation with the book. And that's how I feel about marking them. I do feel like it in, makes me engage more because I know that I can mark. I know that I can write down things. Um, I think, and I think both of us are kind of on that side. So maybe now is a good time to start talking about different ways you have done it that have been helpful or ways that you have found not quite as satisfying. Mm-hmm. You know, are, are there ways that you've done it that have been more beneficial to you as a reader? Because I, I will say there there are ways to do this to make your book still look like a piece of art. You know, you get on Instagram and you see these people who mark their books with little sticky notes that are, you know, like they've written in calligraphy, it looks like, on the, on them. And they've got beautiful co- color-coordinated tabs and markers and they've got their rulers out. And it's pretty beautiful to, to look at the way some of these um, folks have annotated their pages. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for, for a photograph, I mean, it, it, it then starts to veer back into, it still can look beautiful to the mm-hmm. point where I want to see pictures of your bookmarkings, not because I want to see what you wrote. I don't care what you wrote. <laughs> you may have just written a bunch of things that as an undergrad uh, plot moving forward, or, you know, I, right. I don't know, but it's the how you did it that is so beautiful and intriguing. Does, you know, but... The reason I bring that up is my favorite way of marking a book these days that I really want to engage with is reading it. Maybe taking pictures with my phone of the passages that I want to come back to. And then when I'm done reading for that day, getting out my, my pens, I do use a gray pen. This is because I just think it's, it's, it's permanent, but it also is soft 
you know, it doesn't bleed through pages, even thin pages. It's the Windsor Newton gray pen. And I'll, I will mark these passages and use a ruler to underline them. And it's very satisfying to me to go back and almost have that study session again, or this revisiting again. I I find, I find some passages, I read them and I'm like, why did I take a picture of that? Mm -hmm. And others become even deeper for me. And so I, I really like doing it that way. That is that is a way for me to really engage with the book and continue that engagement even after I've kind of, you know, put the book down for reading purposes, but have kept it for marking purposes. I like that as much as I've ever liked going through it and just highlighting as I go mm-hmm. and then maybe not going back and ever checking what I highlighted. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, but, no. but, but, but it, is, it is totally because I enjoy the process and I think it engages me with the books a little bit more, as Chris Villa was saying in his uh, yeah. tweet. Yeah, exactly. No, that's what I've found too. I mean, I, like I said, I'm still very much in the formative phase, so I don't know that I have really settled on anything. I will say that I mostly stick to pencil. I'm still, mm-hmm. that's like how, if I change my mind, I can always erase this. Um, <laughs> but I, I have like, I was in a conversation with, um, it was with uh, Christina Getson on, Twitter and we were talking about this and she said that she really likes to highlight and it's interesting that gray you mentioned gray that seems to be a common theme maybe it's less offensive or less you know like harsh but she talked about she likes the mild gray zebra midliner highlighters for hers mm-hmm. and so you know it's it's interesting I'm still kind of flirting with the idea of like what would be the next steps <laughs> if I do this but I have really been enjoying um tabs you know I've been yeah, doing a lot of tabs. I do love tabs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I've been doing a lot of that. So I I will underline or put stars or exclamation points kind of thing next to like really good passages, not necessarily tabbing every single one. But so far, what I've been doing is like if there's a consistent like a, a page or or something that's just stands out, like either due to length or just it's so good that I want to like make sure I don't miss it at all. I'll usually do underlining and tabs. So like I said, it's still very much an organic process. But I've also, you know, like over the years with war and peace and other ones, like when people say this is a book that has a huge cast of characters, sometimes they disappear for a hundred pages and come back and you don't know who it is. I have also kept like a side notebook for some of those where when a character is mm-hmm. introduced, I will write down the page number and their name and a short description and then like update that as they pop back in. And so that's something I've done and <laughs> I've debated whether I would ever want to do that in the pages of the book, like whether it's the first time a character is introduced, just mark that page and underline it somehow, you know, just in some of those big epics, yeah. for example. So I don't know. I think that's kind of the fun of it. And I guess in theory, <laughs> it would be nice to have like a final, you know, finalized uh, strategy, but at least for me so far, it's not like that at all. Well, and I myself don't like, even though that's my favorite way, and I tend to do that with the bigger books that I'm engaging with, or maybe books that I think are a little more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um it's not my only way. When I when reading Grand Hotel this time around, and even reading uh, Young Man with a Horn, I'm doing it with these like crayon highlighters. I did get you some, Paul. I need to send those to you. Oh, by nice. the way, <laughs> hopefully they'll be fun for you. But they're Absolutely. just these. They're not crayons. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're not gonna. They 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 stay ever sharp because they're just a thin lead almost. But it's a crayon that you unwind and the, it, oh, the okay. end pops out, and they're various colors. And I really like doing that too with books that maybe I'm, maybe I'm not thinking 
this is going to be something I always want to come back to and, and engage with philosophically, but I want to see these beautiful passages. Yeah. You know, I want to be reminded like with the young man with the horn, I marked the passages that I read earlier today and they were the only passages that I marked. I didn't highlight or I did, sorry, I did highlight them. I did not um, put a tab there because mm-hmm. I can just kind of skim through and see them and be like, Oh yeah, I love that part. Mm-hmm. Or that is, that is something that I, that I enjoyed. Um, and so I'm doing that more for the passages than for the, um, than a different kind of engagement with them. Um, but I had a question when you do like your book, do you write in your, in your notebooks in pen or pencil? Cause what if you're like that character turned out to not be very important? Do you erase it or do you yeah. just be like, Oh, <clears throat> it's definitely one of the tricky parts. Like I said, <laughs> war and peace is, is a big messy book. So I justified it by saying my notebook will also be big and messy. Big and messy. <laughs> so often there would be somebody like, like you said, they get introduced and you, at, at that point you have no idea if they will be a main character, if they will be a minor mm-hmm. character. And so there are definitely can, ones that kind of trail off quickly and it's like one yeah. entry. You know, I can 12. see that being a barrier to wanting to mark your book because it's like, I thought at the time this would be important. It turns out it's not. And now exactly. I wish I could delete it. Exactly. Um, Whereas in but, a notebook, it's like, you can just leave it and it moves on. Yeah. No, it's definitely something that's where, like I said, I have never come across any process that works perfectly for me. <laughs> Along these lines, this is a little bit of a, of a tangent, if you'll forgive me. <laughs> I will forgive you. <laughs> I know we have a few of these. Do you do you like having empty notebooks? Like, do you go into, say, a, you know, a stationary shop and think, oh, that is a beautiful notebook. Um, you like the way its pages are lined out. You mm-hmm. like that it's maybe a hard cover with a ribbon mm-hmm. and then you buy it. And, and because it's, it's so pristine and you don't want to fill it with your stupid thoughts, yes, you know, you want them to be brilliant. If you're going to use this beautiful notebook, it better, you know, this, the stuff inside better match what's on the outside. So it sits there unwritten in (laughs) i definitely definitely i have not gone too far down that road but i have several of those that are just these beautiful pristine things that i've either received as gifts or bought a few of them myself and yeah for all the reasons you just said that's exactly the struggle but then i'm also i was just telling my wife the other day we were wandering around a bookstore and there was all these beautiful pens i saw the midliner markers i saw all these notebooks and stationery or like Somebody was posting from a stationery store in in New York the other day, just gorgeous shelves full of all these beautiful you know pen and paper products. And mm-hmm. I told my wife it would take a very gentle push to get me to just fall into that world. I think like I can definitely see the intrigue of it, <laughs> but what holds me back is yeah, a combination of my thoughts. I don't feel like are probably justifying the, that beauty, and also like you know like as far as like the writing, people talk about how this pen, you know, it flows so beautifully. Like, do you like gel point? Do you like this? And like, I'll get one that I is just praised to the stars and I'll start to write. And it's still like my gross, like messy handwriting. I'm like, you know, it's not, I don't suddenly put the pen to paper and it turns into beautiful calligraphy. It's still just my chicken scratch writing. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's funny how some of this stuff, like it's the idealized versus the reality of it. Other people's notebooks tend to always look like they're using them just the right way. And then I when I start to write it, I'm like, I, I don't want to tear out that page now, but don't that doesn't matter to me anymore. I, know. I don't know, but I wonder how much of these impulses are somewhat related. You know, the idealized way of having the book, when you're done reading it, you want it to be this great reflection, the markings you made in it to be the, the ones that mean something. 
you don't want to highlight a character who turns out to be completely insignificant a few pages later, but at right. the moment, you know, you thought it was going to be important. And so you do kind of keep that desire to, to have this be a, an object, but some of the engagement and some of the, you know, the impulses maybe we have to get over with even just writing in pristine, beautiful notebooks is just to do it and enjoy being able to look back and see your your whole journey and not just the the end result it's been kind of fun to read like you know writers diaries some of them you're like this is why i don't write in my diary because right. this is this is someone who's so amazing but like the kafka diaries that, that mm. ross benjamin just translated you know in that great edition you can see his false starts you can see his his run on weird sentences that don't really make a whole lot of sense. And yeah, some of that's because it's Kafka, but he does little sketches and I'm like, he, he was just, this was his place to think. Yeah. And yes, it turned out that he had great thoughts, but not maybe all the time. Um, but I'm enjoying reading the journey and even with bookmarking and such, you know, can I see it that way more than wanting this, you know, someone who comes later on to be like, oh man, this is someone who really knew how to mark up this book the right way, you know? Right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting. There was actually a whole, um, I don't have his name, Sam Anderson, I believe it is from the New York Times, has done over the years entire series on marginalia. And he would like take pictures and, and put his out like a year in marginalia and things like that. And I came across somebody who was writing about that and they said, um, he says he does it not quote, not just to passively read, but to fully enter a text, to collaborate with it, to mingle with an author on some kind of primary textual plane. And I really liked that. And they talked to about some of the, how you start to kind of maybe cringe a little bit at the thought of somebody else picking up one of your books and reading through the marginalia. And, you know, I know that's something else that we all <laughs> struggle, or I don't want to say we all, but I struggle with is, you know, when I look back at my Jane Austen's from college or like Tess of the D'Urbervilles, which is the most marked book that I have by far, maybe I'll post a picture on Twitter. I mean, I notes everywhere. It's really cool and I enjoy it, but it's also like 15, 20, well, more than that now, whatever, 20, 25 years ago. And so there's sometimes that a little bit of embarrassment of like you were young or, you know, foreshadowing or, you know, just whatever, like, right. <laughs> but at the same time, it's kind of metaphor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you have to kind of let go of some of that, I think, and, and just realize that's all part of this, this journey. I mean, when you're that age, that was groundbreaking and you didn't have any idea. So to you, that was very intellectually stimulating at the time. And just because you've moved along doesn't take away from the value of it, I guess. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting stuff. There are a lot of personalities and a lot of you know this is once again more of a, a therapy hour almost like why am i the way that i am with my yeah. bookmarking <laughs> well and we got so many you know we asked people to kind of weigh in on their thoughts and it was just amazing to see the range of mm -hmm. perspectives that people you know came down with some, some people were very much pro some were very anti you know i don't know if you want to read maybe well, a few of those or how do you want to do that i I would say reading through them, most people are pro that mm -hmm. we got responses from, that you got responses from. Yeah. You know, you highlighted some in red that were anti and the others in green and maybe a few that were more neutral in orange. 
most of this is green with a little bit of orange, and even the orange ones are more like, oh, I do it in these situations and not in these. And That's what I was going to say, is what's fascinating is there's people where, and I do this too, like there are some books that I would never mark, mm-hmm. or other people say, I like Alison Fincher says, I used to be priggish about my book's integrity, but then I worked with medieval manuscripts in grad school. Unless we're talking about an heirloom, a book is just a tool. It's ideas inside that have value. And so it's just interesting. A lot of people have these experiences through work or through, you know, studying or different things where they are won over to the idea of notes, mm-hmm. but then, you know, there are very much the other people who are just, I think one of the funniest ones was uh, Damien. <laughs> yeah. One of the antis. It. Yeah. Very anti. Cause I always like to see his like, pictures. He always on Twitter. I've always admired the fact that he has these, two gorgeous little girls who are, you know, always reading his books and thumbing through them. And I've always admired his ability to just let them handle his books. And I'm sure they end up with sticky spots and everything else. But, you know, having had kids, I I know the value of letting them, you know, this obviously means a lot to dad. So therefore, you know, I want to be involved with it, but, but that apparently does not extend to writing in books because he says, I'm a purist because I cannot be persuaded by Satan to do otherwise. <laughs> he says, like Proudhon, I once marked a book and the act of violence was so repellent that I both vomited and threw away the damaged thing. So I just thought that was kind of funny, obviously a little tongue in cheek, but um, when it does bring up that whole idea of, for some people, just the idea of it is still very viscerally wrong. Mm-hmm. And it just really bothers them, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's been really fun to get all these different, and then people will get really into like the very specific things they do. Like, yeah, you know, um, the Ontarian says, I make notes on yellow lined newsprint pads using a particular sort of pen with free flowing ink. I used to mark up my books. I no longer do as many end up being donated to a charity bookshop later. And I think that's mm-hmm. another interesting thing and something I've thought about. I think I even asked you about it is you know, the realities of the size of my house and the number of bookshelves I have, like I can't hold on to every book like I used to. And so I've tried to get better about doing some culling. And I've wondered about that. Like if you're marking up books, you know, often a used bookstore, if you're trying to trade them in, will explicitly say, you know, if if it's marked in, we won't accept it. And so, you know, for you, I think you just said, you know, if that's the case, you would just maybe donate it to a a library or something like that. So it does add some other wrinkles yeah i guess with that for me if I, i've never I, giving it a book there, there's a bookstore in town that uh i just take all of my books to mm. and they always ask me and they already know the answer if there are some that we can't take do you want us to keep them and do their thing with them i don't know if they sell them other ways i don't know if they pulp them i have no idea and i'm just like yes whatever whatever you need to do you know if you donate them to somewhere else, that's fine. I don't have any sense of ownership of these anymore. Mm-hmm. They are yours. And I also don't care if I get even a dime back. I actually have a lot of credit at that place because I don't really go there and shop very often. I go there to take my books and I mm. I have no idea how many, you know, sometimes I look at their antique books. Like they have a really cool mid-century, um, I think it's even illustrated, but edition of... Uh, and I, I think it might just be Swan's way, but it might mm-hmm. be the whole, um, you know, search for lost time. I can't remember. And sometimes I'm looking at that and I'm like, I can afford that because of the credit I have in this store. Should I get that? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't really know. Not yet. And, you know, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, when I, when I take books over there, I figure I'm, I'm pushing them out and I don't, I don't, I hope people enjoy them, but I guess I don't, I, I try not to have that sense that I need to keep my books pristine for whoever may or may not come afterwards. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I like the idea of, of having, you know, I don't like to buy books that are marked by someone else, but sometimes it's a little bit charming. Yeah. It depends but, on how it's done. And, and you can, you know, again, sometimes you'll get some, like I was just talking about my own marginalia from being a student. You'll definitely come mm-hmm. across those where clearly it was like a high school student who, yeah. you know, the first four pages are heavily marked. And then after that, it's just <laughs> blank, yeah. that kind of thing. But, um, but there are also the other ones where, like you said, they're, and, and like they were saying on the book cougars, when you get into the mind of somebody who was intellectually engaged with a book and taking some really thoughtful notes, like sometimes it can add a lot of value or at least interest. So I do like that. Um, I will say there's a lot of people who are in your camp of, of taking photos, which is something I've done before. We've joked about, yeah, I have a few pictures of uh, my kids on my phone, but mostly it's just pages and pages of, of books. And that's definitely something that I do, but like uh, Bart Van Overmeyer and Mark Lewandowski both mentioned, I take pictures of passages in my phone, don't write in my books, but you know, they talk about how then you can add the photos to specific folders on your phone and sort them that way. So there's definitely that side of things too, where people, you know, I think it, when I was reading through some of the essays that have been written about marginalia, a lot of them came about right when e-readers were coming on the scene and they were talking about how electronic reading, like they were speculating at that time, how it might impact marginalia because, you know, Kindle and some of these others have some really cool tools where you can highlight and, you know, add notes and see what other people have done. So it's interesting. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on if you think, you know, the digital experience, whether it's some of the apps where you can keep track of your, your books and, and write mm-hmm. notes or whether it's even on an e-reader or something like that, or taking pictures in your phone and sorting them into folders. Like I think utility wise, it makes a lot of sense and it's very probably more organized in a lot of ways. And I do it, but I also, sometimes I kind of like the, the messiness of, you know, mm-hmm. not necessarily having it all laid out. And as you're flipping through a book, you're like, Oh, I forgot. I underlined that or something like that. Yeah. So I do think that's an interesting evolution in all this too. So I, for me, utility wise, it doesn't work. I don't, I'm not mm. that well organized. I take, if I take pictures on my phone, I have to get them off of it pretty soon or okay. it becomes just a quagmire. I don't put them in folders. You know, I don't, I don't do that. It's not something I enjoy doing, I guess is maybe a way to put it. Like, it's not that I think it's wrong or that I don't think it would work. It's that I don't do it because I don't like it as much as I like sitting down afterwards and pulling out the, the pens and, and, and the ruler, you know, that I enjoy, I enjoy that process. Um, I don't enjoy organizing the pictures on my phone. So I get rid of them. I have like just a handful of pictures on my phone, even though I take pictures every day and take, you know, pictures of my, the books I'm reading and the passages. And there are times when I get behind. In fact, I was looking through my phone to, to clean it off maybe a few months ago. And there are these different passages from devil house and, you Mm. know, some books that I'd taken to, to Mexico last year. And, 
I'm like, I need to get into those books and mark these passages and get these off of my phone and get back to manageable size. And I've been keeping up on it ever since. Yeah. So, so I, I can't do it that way. And it also tends to get lost because then it's just a digital thing out there. I'd rather have it with the book. You know, I'd rather That's... have my thoughts with the book connected. Um, for for me again, this is the, not. No, yeah. I don't think either one of us cares how other people feel. They um, best get and use their books. You know. No, and um, I'm intrigued, honestly. By sometimes I'm kind of like temporarily won over when somebody starts describing their process. I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But <laughs> yeah, but you it, want it, to go further. The, yeah, it just often doesn't work. I mean, um, Kevin hates writing with an eight on Twitter. Says I read everything in Libby. It lets you highlight text and add notes to highlights. You can then download all your highlights and notes as an Excel or CSV file. I keep a spreadsheet list of all the books I read, and part of each entry is a link to a spreadsheet of that book's notes. And I'm like, wow, that sounds amazing. Like, I can really see the value of that, but I know for me, I would start doing that, and I would do it for a book or two, and then right. it wouldn't happen. And so I just it's, it's fascinating to see the different ways that people i i don't even think that let let me know here i'm curious i don't even think you have found a way that you like to log what you have read on any kind of digital device or something you know no you've sent me wonderful spreadsheets and i have like i used one all last year but it was like oh geez i haven't updated that in like a month and so instead of Mm -hmm. i started it on february 2nd and i finished it on february 9th it would be like uh, February. I, I read it in February and like, you know, yeah. so, and then there's another app that you, I know that you sent me and I've, I have yeah, story again, graph is what it story is. Graph. It's amazing. And I used it faithfully for like three weeks and then not <laughs> from lack of interest or value. Like I, I think sometimes once you lose your momentum, then it's like, you kind of get overwhelmed at the thought of going back in and having to add like 10 books. So yeah. yeah and see for me, when I finish a book, one of the things that I enjoy doing is going on there. I don't put the date that I started. I don't care about that. I don't care how long yeah. it took me. Um, but I like to put, I finished this book. I like to to click on the date that I finished it. That to, That's something that I enjoy. It's not mm-hmm. something I do because I think it's right. It's not something I do because of any other impulse. Then I enjoy it. You know, yeah. I like looking back at a year and seeing when and where I was when I was finishing up books. And that's a way that I do it. But even beyond that, I just enjoy that moment. And I don't think it's to check off a book is done. No, I think it's to be excited about about it and about the next one. It's 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 a it's really it's really fun. No, and so I for agree. me, it works. But I get that mm-hmm. for others, you know, not every like Goodreads doesn't work for me. I've tried to be faithful on Goodreads and mark what I've read. I just don't like I don't like the experience. It's mm-hmm. not fun. It doesn't yeah. add to my reading experience. Uh, other parts of Goodreads do. Um, but, you know, tracking what I read and all that, no. But the the story graph just works for me. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. simple for me and it, it just it, it gives me that sense of of it gives me a smile, you know. But yeah. if it doesn't, then it why do it? Well, and what I will say is, I mean, you and I, we've talked about Palimpsest, which was the online forum we met on. And uh-huh. um, they used to do something called palimp lists where, you know, as you finish books, you would just on the forum, you would keep track of the books you'd read throughout the year. And I have all of those. And I have, I will say every year that I, I do eventually end up in some form. It's not very organized, but I do always end up with a list of everything I've read because I think it's amazing to look back on the years and decades and, Oh geez, I never would have guessed I read those two in the same year or, you know, whatever the case yeah. may be. So I do think there's a lot of value. It's just, 
like so much of, I guess, my my reading life. There's, <laughs> it's, I guess, the main thing is it's about the books, and the rest of it, you know, will vary and and change over time, which is yeah. fine with me. But yeah, um, yeah. We also got a really funny one from Michael Martin. I don't know if you saw this one on on Twitter, but we were asking about how p- people do it, and his just says highlighter, and it has a book with a highlighter that is duct taped to the cover. <laughs> and I'm like, right. I like that. <laughs> Utilitarian and effective. So, <laughs> but I think you, I think you hit it on the head for, for all of it. Well, I, and I think Chris V is a great way to start this. What makes my own reading experience, my own relationship with reading and books, the best for me, hmm. you know, I do love books as objects. I really do. I love looking at them. I like buying them. I like, I like holding them. I like putting them back on the shelf. I like organizing books that I've never read and might never read. Um, that to me is its own great experiences. I love reading books. You know, what What are the various things that I do that just give me that kind of joy and, and pleasure? And not all of us are going to be the same on that. And it's right. okay. It's why articles like the one in The Guardian a little bit ago on, mm-hmm. you know, someone basically saying like book ownership is, you know, middle-class aspirational and, and, uh, you know, both of us had a kind of a, an ugly response to that because it seemed like it was saying this is the right way and to do it a different way means you just haven't seen the light. And, you know, Simon Thomas, it it, it just the, the great way that he says there's, there are different joys in reading books and in, in buying books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it's true and it's fine. People, you got to be able to let people do what they, what they feel is really adding to their life. If it isn't, if it's becoming a problem, you know, I get that hoarding books and never doing anything with them might, might not be something that actually is giving people happiness. Uh, but, and maybe you need to be someone who gets away from that because it gives will give you a sense of clarity. I, I'll, and I'll admit, you know, we'll get into this maybe when we do a culling episode. But being able to cull some books does give me a little bit of peace of mind, so that I can see what I have and get excited about it again, mm-hmm. rather than just this overwhelming state that you can sometimes be in when there's too much sitting on the the nightstand. Yeah. Um, you know, but what the the goal has always been: how do I make this work? for me, the the way that I want it to. And what I've talked about in my own experience, it sounds like you too. And and definitely a lot of the comments that we've received from different people is this is not a static thing. Our relationship with books, our relationship with how we interact with books. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we change. I mean, it makes sense because if you get in a reading rut, you change genres or you go for something completely different. And that sometimes is what breaks you out of it. It's the same type of thing with the way you interact with your books. Um, You know, Sometimes people like me may have always been of the pristine school and then all of a sudden they realize they want to try this and and start engaging differently. Or on the flip side, you know, as other people have said on on here, you know, they always used to mark in their books, but now they're getting older and they don't know if the people who inherit their library someday are going to want all these marks. So they've started to do it a different way. And it's just Mm -hmm. it makes sense. I mean, just like any other part of our life over time you know, the way that you feel at a certain time is not going to necessarily extend down through the years. So it's all part right. of this big messy love we have, I guess. <laughs> and it's fun to sit and sit and chat about it. I know. Um, it. In your looks for essays or things about marginalia, did you by any chance come across Billy Collins poem marginalia? I did not. You know, it's almost, it's, it's that, it's almost that time of year to start talking Billy Collins again. You know, it's almost, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's it's getting closer to April and spring, which is when I really love to read 
poetry for some reason, <laughs> reading yeah. seasons. Um, but yeah, he's got a pretty, it's a pretty long poem, so I won't read the whole thing, but uh, I do like parts of it that, that you kind of mentioned. Um, oh yeah, here, I, I didn't, I had not read this before we talked this earlier, but it says students are more modest, needing to leave only their splayed footprints along the shore of the page. One scrawls metaphor next to a stanza <laughs> of Eliot's. Another notes the presence of irony 50 times outside the paragraphs of a modest proposal. <laughs> and then, he, you know, he just has different ways that we respond. Some people being, you know, arguing with the author, others being like fans, like absolutely, you know, things like that. Um, let's see here. <laughs> and if you've ever managed to graduate from college without ever having written man versus nature in a margin, Perhaps now is the time to take one step forward. (laughs) (laughs) How did he get my books? (laughs) That's right. But I like how he kind of ends it. He says, yet the one I think of most often, the one that dangles from me like a locket, was written in the copy of Catcher in the Rye I borrowed from the local library one slow, hot summer. I was just beginning high school then, reading books on a Davenport in my parents' living room, and I cannot tell you how vastly my loneliness was deepened how poignant and amplified the world before me seemed when I found on one page a few greasy-looking smears and next to them written in soft pencil by a beautiful girl, I could tell, whom I would never meet. Pardon the egg salad stains, but I'm in love. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's how he ends his little thing on on marginalia. And, you know, maybe, maybe a good way of looking at this is if you're someone who likes marking in books, it goes back to what they said on, on book cougars. These, these are things lived in. They, they can be markers of a life and of thoughts and development, and they can be embarrassing, mm-hmm. but they can also be vulnerabilities and, and um, see these phases. And if you can get engaged with that as being something kind of beautiful, yeah, then maybe this isn't such a bad thing to be engaged in. You know, no, I, I agree. There was at the, very end of this New Yorker piece on marginalia that just ties into this. I was going to skip it, but since you said that, I think it ties in perfectly. It says, there's something attractive about the contrast between the impersonal authority of the printed page and the idiosyncrasies of the reader's handwriting. A book someone has written in is an oddly intimate object, like an item of clothing once worn by a person now passed away, yet retains something of its former owner's presence. And I think that's beautiful. Mm. That egg salad mark is exactly that. <laughs> it's just there's something that's very intimate and vulnerable, and it also connects you with people that you may never meet. And it's just it is one of the most beautiful things about it. Yeah. Well, this feels like a good place to to stop. Anything I say now will probably be just dumb or reiterating <laughs> things that have already been said, and no need yeah. for that. No. But. Enjoyed our conversation. I'll, uh, we'll have to kind of say how this goes for us, you know, maybe mm-hmm. maybe sharing some of our favorite marked up books that we own, whether yeah. from our own markings or someone else's, you know, which, which ones have been, which ones have given you, like you look back on it, you're glad you did. And which ones do you look back on and say, I marked that, but I have no memory of it. It didn't work. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I just wanted to say thanks to everybody for chiming in. I've had so much fun over the last week or so reading through all of the the tweets and other ways that people have been reaching out and sharing their thoughts. And I would encourage anybody, we tried to highlight a few of them here, but there's so many, um, uh-huh. anybody who wants to could go back and, and dig through those threads. I had posted something a few weeks ago and you could find that 
that tweet and kind of just scroll down. There's probably hours of good reading there and, and all kinds of interesting things. So I'd encourage people to join the conversation and let us know what you do or, or weigh in on that conversation. Cause that's one of the fun things about this community is just so many fascinating people out there who are engaged with their books and having a lot of fun. So. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me excited always. And, and looking back over the last couple of years, if we've been, as we've been doing this, just really glad that we are because it's again, why am I doing this? It's fun. It, it, it increases my enjoyment of reading. It increases mm-hmm. my excitement to read and to engage with people about books and thoughts and experiences and, and just, I don't know, makes, makes things a little bit better for me. So exactly. I love it. <laughs> I do too. So much fun. All right. Well, thanks everybody. We will be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. I, th- I think by the time this comes out, we may have finalized a little bit of our schedule. So check out the newsletter and you, you can see what we've got coming up. But as we record this, I can't remember. <laughs> so we'll have to look there or just wait for the next episode to come out. But thanks everyone again. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com mooks. Until next time.